Welcome to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast with your host, award-winning realtor, Matt Glenn, and top producing mortgage broker, Taylor Atkinson. Professionals in the industry, enthusiastic entrepreneurs, and successful investors. When it comes to real estate, we're all in. Thanks for tuning in today, guys. Welcome back to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Yeah, this is an awesome episode. I was trying to take notes the whole time and... uh... Let's just say I fell behind a few times. <laughs> yeah. Brian, um, very well articulated guy. We have yeah. Brian Stevenson on today. Him and his business partner, uh, Cooper Harrison, founded Lake Point Capital. If you guys don't know kind of how financing commercial multifamily business type ventures work, these two guys are great resources to reach out to. Like every you know venture, you want to have a team behind you, whether that's a real estate agent lawyer, appraisers, inspectors, all that stuff. A commercial mortgage broker is very important just because you can't really just walk into the bank and know what you're getting. You can't just Google this stuff and you know get something on ratehub.com. Commercial financing works entirely different and you need experts in your corner. And these two guys know exactly what they're doing. Brian used to be a partner at Pusher Mitchell. He left that to start this company. He's already kind of taken off majorly we touched on this a bit on the episode but like everywhere i go people are talking about brian so it's super happy to have him on here yeah yeah he's very tied into the community and just a great guy obviously loves what he's doing yeah and same with cooper too i've met him a handful of times yeah really good guys in the community and really happy to have a decaffeinated coffee with you anytime so reach out to them you never know it though yeah yeah <laughs> he's high energy man i love brian it's it's those carrot sticks i tell you yeah he's a terrible golfer though so if you want to make sure you have a good golf game go out with him <laughs> i really need that in my life so I'm no i think him. he smoked me last time uh, yeah I've got an injury though. I'll blame it on that. But for sure, reach out to these guys if you just want to have a chat full of knowledge, you know. Yeah, super informative, super fun. This was a good one. Yeah. Okay. Enjoy it. Welcome to the icebreaker. This segment of the show is brought to you by Taylor at Venture Mortgages. Come venture into the exciting world of mortgages. Okay. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks. You know, I when I think about you, I feel like I'm a guy that's walking into the room after you've always been there because everybody talks about you. It's almost like I'm just a step behind, you know, like you were just there and talking about people. So it's kind of funny like that. That's hilarious. Well, it's nice to actually put faces to names because I have uh, heard a lot about you through Taylor. And again, appreciate you guys having me on here. It's the most popular podcast in Kelowna. It is. Fastest growing. Yeah. Well, yeah, one way our listener gets to know our guest is we just kind of ask them what their perfect Friday is. What makes you feel productive? When do you get up? What do you eat? Where do you go? Because Matt follows you everywhere. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I noticed that there's a few different guests who you've asked that have, I think, very similar answers to me, where it's pretty early morning guy. So I'm usually up around five. And then very fortunate in that we have a little space that we've built at the back of our house has a gym in it. So I'm pretty much up and at him straight into some form of workout. And then what I've liked about the recent career change, which we can chat about, is I get to spend a lot more time with my wife in the morning. So I'm actually on breakfast duty now these days, which is a lot of fun nice. and make some lunches and stuff. And then, yeah, my days on Fridays and most days are really it's partnership that I have with my business partner, Cooper Harrison. We'll chat about a lot of my role is to connect dots for business owners, real estate developers, clients that we work with. And in addition to that, a lot of the professional service providers that are around that ecosystem. So my role is to try to either find the clients that we can work with or find people that 
can support them and what they're trying to achieve. So that's a big part of my day. Emails, coffee meetings. I have a ton of coffee meetings and I really like that part of it as well. It's yeah. great. Yeah. But no caffeine. You're a decaf guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny during law school, everyone else was putting back a few coffees a day and I was the guy munching on carrots or almonds, just <laughs> trying to keep myself awake. Never been a caffeine guy. So yeah. If you drink caffeine, does it just like put you and in I don't know. It's or? just, I'm sure I could get used to it pretty yeah. quick, but it just makes me a bit jittery and I'm just not into the feeling. So yeah. it's yeah, one of those things. Good for you. I'm envious. Do you have any kids, Brian? We are working on it, but no kids at this time. Yeah. My sister uh, lives in town. She uh, had a now just one-year-old niece that we have, and that's been a lot of fun. And a lot of our friends and family and close circle are getting to that stage where uh, kids are coming into the picture and we'll be there soon enough. One more question about the perfect day. What do you make for breakfast? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I am actually a big egg whites guy. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I like egg whites. But also put back a lot of Cheerios. Cheerios are a big thing for me. So with some cut up a banana, some blueberries in there, some cinnamon, love it. But, yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about your kind of transition into the commercial broker role. You and Cooper started this about a year ago? Yeah, actually a little bit less than that. We're only about six months in. Yeah. So just to give the background, so I used to be a lawyer and a partner over at Pusher Mitchell, a local yeah. firm here. Yeah. And Cooper, well, he started his career at Grant Thornton. He's a CA. And after a few years there, he went over to Scotiabank on the commercial side and led their team for about five years and then moved over to a publicly traded company in town here called Decisive Dividend. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but that's uh, quite a good success story. And their whole reason to exist is to acquire manufacturing companies largely as their focus. Uh, they started as a capital pool company and then been acquiring these companies. And Cooper's role there, he was AVP of finance. And the reason I give that background is one of the things that he was primarily responsible for was ensuring that the public company had access to resources to acquire these companies. And he ended up securing $50 million acquisition line of credit for the group, which was very significant to allow them to go forward and execute on their plans of yeah. growth and acquisition. And then when they would buy these companies, he would go in and assist with the financial, not writing of the ship, but optimization of the operations. And before that was involved in the due diligence in looking at all of these different companies. So he has a lot of experience in analyzing the feasibility and viability of companies. And then also, like I said, optimizing the financial picture that they have at the end of the day. So with that background, I think that's an important piece of our kind of journey when it comes to the commercial loan brokering that we do, because we have very different, but complementary skill sets. I'm not the numbers guy. I'll tell the story, which maybe a little bit crass, but I find it quite funny. My wife made us two mugs when we started working yeah. and Cooper's mug has a background of an Excel spreadsheet and then it says freak in the sheets. <laughs> and I have a mug that has two guys shaking hands and it says big hand job guy. <laughs> and so I think that personifies our respective roles pretty well and skill sets. So yeah, anyway, so that's kind of the background. And on the legal side, I did a lot of secured lending, represented a lot of the financial institutions in town, and then I did also business and real estate transactions. So we have a very, I think, unique and robust professional background and level of expertise to bring to the commercial loan brokering role, rather than just having been well, in Cooper's case, a banker, or, or just having been someone who represented lenders, we've sat on all sides of the table, per se. The lending, the borrowing, the acquisition, the sales side, it spans that spectrum. So that allows us to add a lot more value to the clients that we're working with. And because of our professional networks and experience, we're able to pull in other 
value add opportunities. And a big thing actually, I think is making those connections for clients. It's nice because when I was a lawyer, I was very much at the end of transactional cycles. Largely by the time people came to me, the board was set and pieces were in motion. I like to use that phrase and I was just there to close it. Whereas now we're a lot closer to the beginning of transactions and we have a lot better ability to influence the professional sphere that is surrounding that client. And that's a really fun role to be in, be that trusted advisor to try to actually add value through just connections in addition to the service that you directly provide. So, yeah, kidding. so how long have you been thinking about starting this? Like you're a young guy, your partner at Fisher Mitchell, like yeah, it's a good question. Really, Cooper was the originator of the idea for sure. And it kind of grew out of, a, I think, just an opportunity, I think, that we saw in the market. Like I said, a set of skills that we think could be utilized in a different fashion. And it was also a very different interest rate environment when we were thinking about doing this. So it's... Uh, oh, you've noticed too? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And part of that is actually quite important, I think, because in the role that we're currently doing and in the environment we're doing it, there are challenges, certainly. That's actually, I think, a good thing in a way for us because it promotes the need or desire for people to work with specialists like ourselves to help navigate the debt side of things at the commercial level. Whereas I think the environments when uh, things were more frothy, let's say, I think businesses and developers just felt, oh, I'll just go to the lender I've always worked with and I'm going to get super cheap money and they're going to give me the best rate and it's fine. It's very interesting, actually, in working with clients, whether it's business related or real estate related. And I guess I should take a second to emphasize that we do lending that's not just restricted to the real estate space. That is a bread and butter of what we do. We do real estate development. We work with commercial landowners. We just closed on a owner-occupied refinance of a property. And so that's an important part of what we do is the real estate piece. But we also do business financing. And, and what we mean when we say that is non-real estate secured lending. You'll oftentimes have businesses that have real estate asset and they have operations and that's good. And there's opportunities to leverage things at different amounts. But then you'll also have instances where they have no real estate holdings. It's purely based upon their cash flows purely based upon their inventory and AR. And that's a bit more of a unique form of financing. And most commercial loan brokers play purely in the real estate space. And our ability to do both, I think, is an important value add for clients. And, and so that's a big part of what we do is making sure that when we're working with clients, we're talking about, okay, we're in an interest rate environment where obviously the cost of funds is a very important thing, but you also need to be cognizant that interest rates are often held out as lenders as that shiny kind of bauble that they're going to say, okay, look at this rate, it's lower than others. Yeah. Well, let's think about the rest of the structure of that loan though. What sort of leverage are they able to offer? What sort of debt service covenants do you have? What sort of reporting standards do they have? And what we found even recently on some transactions that we've closed is we'll have a variety of different lenders come to the table and say, hey, we want to win this bid and look, here's this low interest rate. But when you actually compare all of the other costs associated with that money and you compare it against the other lenders as well, we found is that the lowest interest rate, after you add in all the other costs, the lender fee, the annual requirements uh, from a reporting perspective and the costs associated with those, you'll find that that actually wasn't the cheapest cost of funds. So that's an important part of making sure that the client has more insight into these different options that exist. And then also us taking an approach of, we're not just going to go to lenders and say, hey, we have this business or we have this real estate project and here's a zip file with a bunch of information about it and let us know what we can get. It's more about prescribing to them, hey, we want this structure. Like this is something that we think we can get. We know that you have your ability to play within. Maybe we're pushing some of the edges for you, but that prescribed method of an approach to getting a loan for a client creates a world of difference because it's a lot more of a direct ask approach rather than a passive, please give me something, so.
Yeah. I feel like there's two main topics we want to talk about. There's like small business, just getting operating loans to try and, you know, scale their business portfolio. And two on the real estate side, maybe let's talk about like multifamily space or commercial space. We'll dissect maybe the multifamily first, if that's okay. So a lot of people are interested right now in like CMHC, MLI Select type programs, you know, best way to leverage them. Obviously with MLI Select program, there's a lot of, you know, boxes to be ticked in terms of like affordability, efficiency, accessibility. What are the pros and the cons of that program? What's the LTV we can go? What are the kind of premiums and the insurance you have to pay to get that? Like real short answer, do you like that program? Yeah, well, it's very interesting. I think it's a great question because right now in the current environment, without that program, so many projects are finding it very difficult to pencil without the ability to have those extended amortizations and those extended loan to cost or higher loan to cost ratios. And you've hit a variety of different topics on the head there. And I think bringing it to the reality of the situation, even in Kelowna, I'm sure you guys saw the Kelowna housing needs assessment that was done recently. Maybe you didn't, but it was a projection looking, okay, what is the existing needs of the region? And then what is the needs up to 2031, I believe they went to. And in assessing that, we're currently at a housing from a unit perspective deficiency of, I believe it was 3,500 to 5,000. And that's the immediate deficiency that exists. Then they looked at the year over year types of needs. And again, leading up to that 2031 period, there's approximately 2,200 units that need to be built every year. And Cooper and I were looking at this the other day, and in terms of the units that were currently being built right now, housing starts from a year-to-date perspective, so this would be August, essentially, of 2023. The total starts that we have in the area are just over 1,900, and let's focus on the completions units that are actually done, just under 1,500. So about 1,500 are being done in 2022 thus far. So at the end of the year, let's say we bump that up by another few hundred. But at the end of the day, there's an anticipated need of at a minimum about 2,200. So there's a gap already formed there. Yeah. So And everyone knows this narrative, or at least you think everyone would know that we're just not building fast enough. What's also interesting, though, with some of these stats is the type of units that are being built. And there is a disproportionate amount of apartments and condos that are being built. And that just goes to the density requirements and that leads into the cost element of things. And because we're having these densification occurring for a variety of reasons, one, to avoid endless sprawl of a municipality and the cost associated with extending services to our regions on the border of our growth boundary. But also at the end of the day, densification is an important way to increase efficiencies and to reduce the overall cost of providing these units. So the reason I give that background or bring up any of that is because when we talk about the financing side of things, CMHC does play such a key role in making sure that these projects can actually work. Like you mentioned, Taylor, the amortizations, the loan to value ratios, this program is incentivizing is the completion of purpose-built rentals. And CMHC is a federal body. And so they're looking at this at a national level. And I think one thing to emphasize as well in terms of the role that Cooper and I play, we are, as a partnership, operate under a brokerage that's actually called Foundry Mortgage Capital Corporation. And they're out of Southern Ontario, and they've done about a billion dollars in construction financing for multifamily amongst other types over the years. And the reason that's relevant is we have CMHC correspondency through that brokerage. And what that means is, at the end of the day, for CMHC financing, CMHC is not the entity that's directly lending the funds. They have some programs where they do do some direct lending, but what they do is they provide a certificate of insurance that can then be taken to an approved lender, and then you would get financing through that approved lender, and that lender is able to lend at such low rates with such high amortization ratios because they have that certificate of insurance that's backing that loan, so they're willing to take that risk. 
So at the end of the day, what's so interesting about these products is there's a very high demand nationally for them. And as a result, there's some tricky elements with navigating them. So you're talking about, do I like this program? I think this program is extremely necessary. I think we need to try to expand the offerings that can be provided. But at the same time, we have a government process that can be stymied by some bureaucracy. And one example of recent infamy was they did an increase on some premiums for the program in June of this year. And so when that was announced, there was a flood of applications to the program just before that occurred. And it's in June, summer happens, people go away, government rolls, kind of stuff, and there's just a massive backlog. And so now it's becoming a thing where you have to be very cognizant of if you have a project, even though you may check all the boxes for all the CMHC requirements, how is this going to work from a timing perspective? And so we're having conversations with clients about, okay, it looks like we'll have to do this as a conventional construction loan type situation, and then we'll have to bridge that into a CMHC financing when the time frame actually permits. And just because they won't approve it? Sometimes they won't or can't. What, it could take six to nine months? I, I would say a minimum nine months right now. Yeah. Like from the time of actually engaging with CMHC, having them take a look at the initial proposed information and then getting an underwriter assigned to the file. And then that's assuming also that there's been no issues with it. What's interesting is our brokerage was talking with an individual who works closely with CMHC through the lending that they do the other day. And they're saying a few things. And one of them was like, it's not ever going to be expressly said, but they're looking for opportunities to try to kick stuff out of the queue if they can, because they have such a demand coming through right now. If they have an ability to say, you know what, actually, you check this box, this box, but you missed this one, out you go, type of thing. So yeah. nine months for an approval or to get paid, do you think? Nine months to get access to the funding certificate of insurance, and then you can go to the lender. I'm just, like, I'm just trying to think of how a developer would do this. Like If you're looking at a piece of land you want to develop, you want to put a building on, like, do you just buy the land, hope that you can eventually get approved, or you just have to be able to sit on it for years until... Well, you also have to account for the fact that they're looking at going through the development process in whatever jurisdiction exactly. they're associated yeah. with. Yeah, so there's zoning, which is going to take a couple of months, actually more on the big projects, but then you have to do this. So like, you, when they go by, do they go to the seller and like, listen, we want to buy this, but we have subjects for two years. Well, that, like, that's the hard part about the program. I like the program, but when I was selling my multifamily, that was the same issue. Like everyone that was interested yeah. said, hey, we want to do like a nine month close because we want to do CMHC financing. It's like, I don't want to tie this up for nine months and then it falls. Like a nine month subject removal, so not even close. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a really lengthy process to be approved for that. I think it works more on the developers that have deeper pockets and can bridge it, you know, with construction financing like Brian's talking about, and then their exit is CMHC. Yep. But if, you know, it's a mom and pop looking to buy a 12-unit multifamily, well, it's pretty hard to close on it conventionally with 30 40% down and then exit out in a year to CMHC with not even knowing if you'll be approved by CMHC. It's also interesting because the environment's such where there's cost fluctuations and changes to projects. So we're actually, we have a client who the original conception, it's vastly changed from what it was going to be in terms of a five or six story development that they're doing. And what's also interesting, again, going to the idiosyncrasies of the municipality that you may be doing a project in and going to the needs in terms of the number of units that required. Micro suites are becoming such a prevalent part of how these deals can actually work because you need that density and you need the bonuses associated with that density. So whether that's the higher FAR, the floor area ratio, or you have reduced parking requirements for every micro suite you have. And then there's also, it's interesting, there's a car share program in the city of Kelowna. If you become part of this car share program, you can get a reduction of five parking stalls as a result of having that dedicated to that development. So it's those types of factors also can fluctuate in terms of the design. And what's also interesting with the CMC program, and this is where politics kind of get mixed in with some stuff is 
One of the criteria for CMHC is affordability, and it's a point-based system. You get a certain number of points based upon the project having a certain percentage of an affordable element of things, and that percentage is based upon 30% of the median renter income for the area that you're in. So you can get, for example, at 70 points on a new project for if you have 20% of that project having units that are being offered out at 30% of the median renter's income for that area. Sorry, when you mean points, it's basis points, like a discount off the rate? No. So the CMAC product, in order to get access to certain metrics associated with the product, so whether that's the 95% loan to value, whether it's the 40, 45, or 50-year amortization, these are all based upon if you're able to get through a range of points. Typically, it's done 50, 70, or 100 points. If you get 100 points, then you get access to the full suite of available positive terms for the loan. If you only get 70 points, then you're going to get a slightly reduced sort of loan structure. And so with the affordability piece, and I have it right here, actually. So if you're going to do new project, let's say, and you wanted to get 70 points out of the 100 that's available, 15% of the units have to be rented out at a maximum of 30% of the median renter's income for that area. But this is where the politics come in, is that 30% median renter's income, how do you think that's calculated? CMHC uses StatsCan data, but they're using it from 2019. And the reason that's political is because we have an increase in costs across the board, increases incomes as well with inflation, and they're trying to really make sure that affordability piece stays even more affordable by looking into the past more than the reality of current market rents. So it's just very interesting. Well, and I guess, does it even work in the Kelowna market? Because rents need to be so much higher, but like if they're taking the median income, like they take it through BC or federally, or do they go in the- They go to Kelowna. They go to Kelowna. Like in Kelowna, it's roughly $1,100. $1,188 would be the 30% of median renter income. For a one bedroom. So you'd have to rent out a one bedroom for 1100 bucks. That's the maximum you could rent it out for. That's what I mean. Like I'm so torn on this. Like I love the initiative that, you know, these programs are taking to try and provide affordable housing and we need it for sure. But does it really make sense? Maybe it does for a developer on a much larger scale, but does it make sense for somebody to buy an investment and have lower rents and have to upgrade efficiencies like windows or siding, insulation, roofing, like major capital X on these projects to be approved for a 40 year amortization at a rate that's half a percent to three quarters of a percent lower than what's going like yeah you know and over a 40 year am you're just going to pay more interest on it anyways like Mm -hmm. i don't know it's almost like a gatekeeping scenario where like only the people that can afford to wait for this long to get approved and take these hits on the rents and like feels like it'd be really hard to start getting into the developer space right so like we need right now more housing everyone knows it's like the worst kept secret ever but just the big developers that are already in town and set up can do this. So a few different comments. So you're not wrong, Taylor. At the same time, I think that's why the system is designed to have a multi-point based approach and that you mm-hmm. can do a mix of the affordability and a mix of the energy efficiency. And again, this is a federal program, but from a provincial perspective, the building codes in BC are more rigorous than you have in other jurisdictions. So it's actually a bit easier to meet some of those efficiency standards, although there is definitely, you need to be cognizant of the costs associated with taking from BC step code two to BC step code three, like you need to model that out effectively. That is part of what we do with clients as well. But a larger comment going to your point, Matt, because there is an experience requirement as well associated with these loans. There's personal net worth requirement. You have to be able to bring in 25% of the loan value is from personal net worth. So I think there is actually some intentionality behind. It's not meant to be for everyone. It is meant to try to support those larger developments with those more experienced players involved because those are the specialists. They're the ones who are going to probably make the big 
biggest dent in the yeah. needs that the population has at a much more macro level. So I agree with that then. I don't feel it's for the mom and pop investors. I don't feel it's for the older apartments. Like it doesn't make sense for somebody who can't cash flow conventionally or have enough down payment, like 25% down to buy that investment, to be able to stretch it out to a 40 year, to put 10% down just to be able to get in that investment asset class, you know, like it. Yeah. That's also why there's a minimum number of five units is the minimum. Well, it's interesting that fourplexes are not getting caught in that type of thing. And then again, I think that's not unintentional. Yeah. But where you can meet that five unit requirement at a minimum, there still is, if you can get that conventional construction financing and you want to do a takeout with CMHC, that's definitely an option that exists. There are also requirements to navigating the use of funds when you do take money out using the CMHC financing from a refinance perspective. There's 24 month period yeah. where they want you to roll that into a future project. And again, going to the conversation about who's this meant for, well, if you're a developer and you can roll that into the next project, like you're not worried about necessarily pulling equity out every time because that's where you're living off of type yeah, of thing. Yeah. So again, that's another kind of reinforcing feature of the product, I think. Yeah. So recently, $40,000 forgivable loan. I mean, the details aren't super clear on that for building houses with rental suites and then as well as taking away GST on rental units, catching you a little bit off guard. But like, do you find there's one program that's like, yes, this is going to change affordable housing. Like this is the one that is working. Right. I see what you're saying. They just seem to be throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks instead of coming up with a really detailed plan of being like, this is the gold nugget. This is what's going to solve all our issues forever. This will be a very easy comment to resonate with, but the government approach is often taking a sledgehammer where a scalpel is needed type of thing. And we see that all across the board, whether it's speculation tax, whether it's vacancy yeah. taxes, like it's just, and you're also seeing it's just like unhoused population kind of issues. It's a multi-jurisdictional problem. And the federal government definitely has a big role to play, but the provincial government has one as well. And the municipal level, they have roles to play. And whether that's making the building permit and development permit processes more efficient, maybe it's reducing the development cost charges per units. Maybe it's recognizing for first-time home buyers from a property transfer tax exemption perspective that you can't really buy anything below their uh, prescribed purchase. Yeah, it's almost a useless type of program. It now. is completely useless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. So yeah. I saw that it was super frustrating as a lawyer to be a part of all those conversations where people are just like, oh, I'm a first-time home buyer. I don't have to pay PTT. It's like, mm -hmm. well, unfortunately, that's not how this works because your first home is, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so much more expensive. But also, it's good that you brought up the GST thing because that is quite significant. I mean, to have that 5% as a cost on the budget for developers and now removed and being able to... Now, it's interesting because... It's unfortunate the legislation hasn't been passed yet and they would have to amend the Excise Tax Act and to deal with what the actual mechanics will look like. But we've been told, at least thus far, it's only going to be for projects starting as of, I think it was September 14th going forward. Well, that sucks for the guys who are now just breaking ground on the 12th type of thing and what that actually looks like. Yeah. So how do you compete with like, if you're both coming to market on a similar time, this guy has a 5% margin advantage to basically reduce his price and offload that yep. asset. Yep. So yeah. Yeah. you can't just sit around on your hands and do nothing, but not to get too political, do you think they're coming out with a lot of these programs right now because, you know, going to be going to the polls in a couple of years and the government's trying to influence? I think that's always a factor. I think there's been acknowledgement that there could have been things done more earlier, but that also can be the same thing said for the Bank of Canada and the way that they approach interest rates. But unfortunately, you have an entity trying to pull on as hard as they can the only true lever that they have, which is Bank of Canada and interest rates. And then you have government that is, in many cases, outspending what those rates can try to impact. So this is an example of where, okay, the GST thing, what I do like is 
I like smaller government, less government intervention, less prescription of how things need to be done. I believe that the market is better at determining what the ultimate efficient outcome is. And reducing taxes, I think, will produce the most optimal outcome rather than them trying to prescribe how you need to build things. Or I mean, they're doing that a bit with CMHC, but there's still, it's not too specific of a framework. So going to your comment about, okay, here's the nugget that's going to solve everything. And it's very detailed. And I think that's also something that the government's just not good at doing. And so the GST thing, I think PST on certain costs as well has been proposed by the provincial government to have some reductions on there. So that's good. But there's limitations to this with the GST. I believe it's meant to be for projects that have to complete by 2035, I believe. And they have to have started before 2030. And Regardless of whether those dates are actually accurate, the point is, is that they have put an end date on things. So very interesting how quickly new taxes will arise and how almost impossible it is to get them to go away. And we saw that with the income tax when it started during the war kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And then in terms of, I guess, small business loans, operating lines of credit, do most lenders look for security to put that against? Like if they have an asset or are they willing just to do it purely on their income versus expense? Right. I see what you're saying. And it definitely varies. And I think one thing to emphasize, and this is something that we speak with when we're talking with clients and prospects and centers of influences, is emphasizing that there is a very wide range of lending options out there. We in this room would be very familiar with, well, everyone listening to this podcast would be very familiar with the big charter banks and the brands associated with the RBCs, the BMOs, locally, the Valley First, all those kind of primary financial institutions that come to mind when you think of lending. Yep. But there's a whole swath of private lenders that exist and just other chartered institutions that people don't know of as household names as frequently, but a lot of private options that exist in both the real estate and the non-real estate based space. And so when we're working with clients, a big thing is understanding that, okay, you probably and should will have an existing banking relationship and maybe with two or three banks even type of things. Like you may have been around for a bit and you can understand that. But at the end of the day, the value of having someone like us in your corner is we talk to lenders every day. When we say we talk to lenders, again, it's like, oh, RBC provides this sort of product or this sort of thing. But we're actually talking to Joe Smo at RBC and we know Joe type yeah. of thing. Like we know and we understand how motivated Joe is to do certain things, what his targets are, what sort of products that they're told internally that they're trying to push more than others, that sort of thing. So, and we know how responsive he is. We know when he's going on vacation. Like those are very important pieces of actually getting deals done in a timely manner where time is money in the business world. So that's a big piece of it. But then having access to this other segment of the market that people just don't know about is very important when it comes to creating a competitive process for our clients. And so on the business side of things, to answer your question, the security piece can vary. Again, it's oftentimes businesses will have GSAs or general security agreements that they're going to give to lenders that give them wide ranging security over all of their personal property and assets and their bank accounts and that sort of stuff. And that's usually a baseline. Obviously, there's guarantees associated with different loan products and bringing in operational elements of what a company may be doing on one hand with some of the new projects that they're doing over here. And Anyway, it all depends on the complexity of the business that you're dealing with. But the point is, is that when you're going through that process, the more lenders that you can bring to the table with a prescribed outcome that we say, hey, we want this instead of just what will you give us, sharper the pencils are going to get on the other side of the table. So better outcomes will occur for the client on the debt side. Because the only security I have is Matt's jag. I took his title out this morning. (laughs) I noticed that in the driveway there. I was like, damn, Emily's doing well. Yeah, I'll take anything at this point. Just throw money at me. Okay, so can we talk a little bit about your kind of client journey? So our listeners going to hear this and be like, I need to reach out to Brian. I need money. I want to buy a multifamily. I want to get my business going. What's kind of the process to work with with you and Cooper? Timeframe, commitment. Can you just walk us through that? Yeah, for sure. So obviously, like most 
professional services, you're going to start with a bit of a discovery in terms of what the client is, what they have going on, and what their desired outcomes are. So we always start with really understanding what the business is that they're in. And just we'll just use a business example for this case, and you can replace all these words with development project if you want, but focus on the business side. So we get an understanding of what their business is, and then we will take some information that they will give us. And we like to do this just because we come from the professional advisory world. We'll do an NDA that we'll give to the client to say, hey, just as an added layer of protection for your benefit, if you send us information, it's pursuant to this NDA, it's all confidential. And, and again, it would be anyway, but we just like to give them that piece of paper. Yeah. Anyway. So we do that. So we get some information from them and then we'll do a review of what they provided us and we'll put together a proposal. We'll say, hey, based upon what we've seen here, what we have access to at this time, because we will need more information, but based on what we have access to at this time and what you're saying that your preferred outcome would be, this is what we think we can get you. And so we'll kind of prescribe a bit of a credit structure that we think is attainable, again, based upon our industry knowledge, based upon what we know is currently available in the market. And if we do attain that, if we fulfill our mandate, it's called, then we will be entitled to earning a success fee. So we get paid only if we are able to achieve success for the client. And what I really like about that is it aligns our values and best interests with the clients very directly, and in a way that's kind of prescribed at the outset. And so we say, okay, if we do achieve that, we achieve X for you, you're going to pay us Y. And Y is typically a percentage of the loan amount that's actually placed. And that amount is going to vary. The larger the loan, of course, we're going to have a smaller percentage that will be due to us, but it's going to be pretty dependent upon the transaction. It's not just always this one set fee. It is based upon complexity, amount actually required, timelines, it kind of spans the gambit. But we've had deals where it's ranged between 0.25% up to 3% type of thing. And so that's just to give a sense of kind of what things look like. And the nice thing with that is, again, we're trying to align our outcome with the clients because as a lawyer, what I felt as often was a bit of a necessary evil and just a costed line item rather than something that's actually getting you a positive return on investment. Because our whole role here and goal is that, hey, especially where it's easily quantifiable, we try to do this as much as we can. And what I mean by that is we had a recent client that we just did a refinance for on a commercial property. Property and it was a rate savings play. He didn't necessarily need much more leverage. He didn't really need different items in terms of terms, but what he did really want was just to save as much as he could on the interest rate. So, okay, we go through, we take that out to a competitive process and we're able to get him the best cost of funds. And again, remember, it's not always the interest rate on the commitment letter. And then we can say, hey, look at this, based upon this three-year term you just entered into as an example, the next nine months, our fee will be paid off and everything is gravy for you after that. And so why wouldn't you want to have us involved as a result? Now, other times it's going to be a bit more qualitative. There will be some quantitative savings, but qualitative in terms of, okay, you're getting the leverage you need to do the development project, or you're getting the reporting requirements reduced in order to allow you to have a lower financial burden on these costs that you have, whatever the different terms of the loan may be. So cool. Awesome. So are you like on a 50-50 business kind of Secured assets, unsecured, or? I'd say right now, actually, that's a good question. Well, I think, yeah, we're kind of working 50-50 in terms of real estate versus business stuff right now. Like we have a client right now that we're helping with a roll-up strategy, yeah. essentially buying smaller versions of his business across different jurisdictions. And what's key with that sort of facility that we need to get from is it's the lending partner is so important because you don't want someone who's just going to fund the first loan and then say, pump the brakes on the second one that happens nine months yeah. later. They want to see more stabilization. Well, it really hampers that strategy. So you need to find a lending partner who gets it and is able to give an acquisition line that is that dry powder necessary to go make these 
acquisitions without having to pre-approve everything that they're looking at. Because that's one of the biggest issues and one of the challenges associated with acquisition lines is people are like, oh, well, I have a good asset base. I have a good income with this business. I just want to attach essentially the equivalent of a HELOC yep. to this. And then why can't I just go use that money for anything? Well, it's banks do not like giving you just cash in the pocket to go do whatever you want with when it's referred to as an acquisition line. What's very interesting about that, though, as a quick side note, is you can get an operating line for a business and you could go out and essentially have a big party with that money and the bank's not doesn't have any oversight of it because it's considered an operation line it's different anyway yeah. so there's just some little nuances to navigate with that stuff but yeah so 50 50 what we do is the real estate versus business right now and that ratio will fluctuate over time and yeah uh, yeah. yeah right on yeah fantastic and you do all this out of shop in the garage, is that right? Oh yeah, so we like to compare ourselves to Bezos and Steve Jobs starting out in the garage. Sure. Yeah, so... Um, I'm sure they had similar coffee mugs as he does. Too. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure. And I'm sure their wife also was like, yeah, you quit being a lawyer. And I know you say you're working hard, but it seems like you're golfing a lot now. Fine, it's funny. We don't have a storefront. They can't just walk through the door. I got to go out and meet them. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, well, I will say like anyone that bought or sold residential property, like your name must be on a million papers out there because you did a ton of transactions when you were doing that. So sad to see you go from that transaction, but really excited to see you in the commercial lending space because, yeah, you guys are awesome. And uh, yeah. honestly, like what I said earlier, you are doing something right. Like every room I go into, I feel like someone's talking about you. So you are uh, getting out there. That's yeah. what I, I appreciate that. Well, yeah. and thanks for taking the time to have me on this. It's an honor. I feel very uh, lucky to be asked to do it. Yeah, yeah, I've been bugging you for ages to come <laughs> on down. I'm glad you finally, yeah. Well, hopefully it's something you can learn. There's also like uh, Basil's and... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, hey, we're starting in our shops. Yeah, makeshift. Yeah, we're sleep. both in sweatpants. <laughs> you guys are wearing pants. Yeah, <laughs> for you, uh, we put on pants. Yeah, well, someone that is so connected in the Kelowna community, what's like exciting you most about Kelowna over the next two, five, ten years? Whether that's investments, developments could be real estate could, storefront yeah 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 exactly <laughs> yeah yeah for sure like what's kind of the most exciting area of town for you just in terms of the direction it's going yeah no that's a very interesting question i mean so i used to be the president of the downtown clone association for a small period of time and was on the board for a number of years i mean our downtown can be such a vibrant place it definitely has challenges associated with the growth it's experiencing as do so many municipalities throughout everywhere and I think what's so exciting for me about Kelowna is I've spent most of my life here and very fortunate to be able to say the vast majority of my close friend group has also been able to stay in Kelowna. And I think that was a big change from our city's history, whereas previously it was, okay, sleepy retirement town, not much opportunity for younger individuals, so they'd have to go out somewhere. And maybe they'd come back eventually, but you just never knew, whereas now there is a lot more opportunity. Now the challenge now is, frankly, there's jobs but it's the affordability piece. And so that is something that is very cognizant of. And myself, my wife talk about often how very grateful and lucky we feel just because we had a townhouse that we sold and then bought the house that we're in. Literally, it was like March and April, 2020. So like just at the beginning of that COVID spike and craziness. And so we avoided all those multiple offer situation. We avoided the vastly great overpaying event that occurred in my opinion, <laughs> but we're very lucky. And without that just blind, unplanned, dumb luck, we would have been in a very different housing situation. The impact that that has on people, I think when you're thinking about starting a family, you asked me that earlier and think about the friend group that I have. And, and there's a lot of people that are at stages of life where I think it's just a natural inclination to want to have kind of yourself and your, your home situated and settled, your career kind of settled, and then you go towards that next piece of life. And what we're finding, I think about my parents or many people's situation, 
situations where their parents were in their early, mid, later 20s type of thing, and they'd already had a kid or were just starting to have kids. Whereas now it's early 30s, mid 30s, kind of pushing later 30s where people are starting to have kids because I think, frankly, of costs amongst other things. Like takes a while to like for me to get into law it was seven years of post-academic study. So that is a big time frame in your life where you're not earning significant or any real money type of thing. And then you start a career and it takes you a few years to get established. And so whether it's think about partners who are looking to start a family in Kelowna, like we have so many things going for us from a geographic perspective. It's just a beautiful place to be. We have some increasing likely challenges from an extreme weather perspective, but I think so many other places in the world will have that as well. I don't think you can necessarily, I was actually having a conversation with someone where they're like, I'm thinking about going out of Kelowna because of the smoke and the fires. It's like, okay, where are you going to go? He's like, well, I was thinking about maybe going over here and while going out east, I was like, well, they're hit by a hurricane right now. So like trying to run away from those problems aren't isn't yeah. that much of an option. But, yeah. but again, sorry, the, to answer your question, Geographically, obviously, we have a lot of good things going for us. I think because we have a increasingly diverse professional base, whether that's the tech sector, it's not just servicing retirees anymore. It's actually productive types of opportunities that exist from a business perspective. That's going to continue to drive a younger demographic. And I think we are, can't remember the stats, but we are skewing younger than we have been in the past, yeah. which is great. And plus, we're still cheaper than larger centers. So we're still seeing an influx of people who look at us as something that is actually more affordable. So, yeah. That's funny you said about waiting till later in life to have kids. I think Taylor and I both, like, I'm 37, I have a six month old baby. Oh, congrats. Yeah. So, like, we're like that too. It's funny, this is kind of an anecdote, but I was doing a presentation yesterday, and one of our staff in our presentation was downsizing. And one of our stats was 65% of kids under 35 move out. So, you might want to consider downsizing. And I was looking at this, I'm like, so. 35% of 35-year-olds are still out their parents is the way I read that. And I think it's just like in no small part because of our market and the affordability. Oh, yeah. I think intergenerational living, like my mother-in-law is in our uh, suite downstairs. Yeah. Like there's a lot of pros associated with that, though. Like yeah. having Taylor and I were talking about childcare earlier and like now that we're telling her this right now, we're saying that this is going to be the thing. But <laughs> there is an element of built-in childcare in the yeah. future if oh, that yeah. were to be a thing. Like there's some things that are really beneficial about having that. And the thing that's challenging, I think, is when you're growing up, at least for my generation, when you're growing up, the idea of having your own house, the white picket fence, it wasn't a dream, it was an expectation. Yeah. Whereas now, having a single family dwelling is very much a dream. And so I think the unfortunate thing is that, again, going to those stats, we're talking about how many units we need and what we're building and how developers can even make these deals work, is people are getting put into some smaller living arrangements, which I think can be okay for a certain period of your life and quite actually fun to live in a space where it's like, okay, it's, it's a smaller space, so I actually want to be out in the community more and I get yeah. that, but but that only will take you so far until you're at a stage of, well, well, I couldn't fit a kid in here or if I have a partner or a spouse, like I can't live in here with two, like it's, you get to the stage where there's going to stymie some of the normal transitions you would see in relationships and family development. That's kind of a Canadian privilege, maybe North American. Like you go over to older countries like Europe or in Asia, you know, very small living spaces, not a lot of yard space. Like we're very entitled in Canada that we want this uh, yeah, huge single family house with a big yard at least Canada and the US yeah yeah okay well I want to jump into kind of our wrap-up questions here if we can time for everyone's favorite part of the show the ice maker section brought to you by myself Matt Glenn if you could purchase one property in the Okanagan in the next 12 months what would it be oh right yes I think we'd love a recreational property like a cabin or something like that I think it's very difficult to find something like that but the reason is is as we're progressing to the more family-oriented stage of life I think it'd be so awesome to have that place you can go and make those consistent memories like there I have a very close friend of mine who used to go up to the shoe swap all the time with it was like four different families I think and they always reserved the same site and it was always for the same weekend and it was just 
this cool tradition that developed. And I think yeah. that's something that we'd love to do with our immediate family as well as to have that. Again, finding that is going to be, if anyone's selling something at Beaver Lake or something like that, <laughs> let me know because that'd be awesome. Yeah, it's kind of cool to wake up later to when your kids are growing up. We spent our summers at the cabin. I think yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. What's the best thing you spent uh, some money on? Fortunately, I guess this is a theme of my responses, but the detached garage that we're operating out of, I don't know if you can put a price tag on having just space that's so dedicated to matching your kind of physical needs, if that makes sense. Like the reason I say that is, so we have a portion of it is a gym space. And I think that's so important because when you have so many different obligations in life, it can be very easy to let that side of the exercise world kind of fall to the wayside. But when it's kind of right in front of you, you very quickly reduce the barriers to entry, let's say. So I'm really appreciative that we have that because it just allows us to live the active lifestyle that we want to. And then we have the bit of a lounge and kind of we have a table for getting together with friends and TV and couch for hanging out. And then we have where Cooper and I work. So that space for me is just kind of embodies so much of what I have to be spending a lot of time on in my life right now. And it's great that it's 11 steps beyond my back door. So my commute yeah. is very, uh, very quick these yeah. days. How far is it for Cooper? Cooper is up in Glenmore, so, but it's not too far. I think what's nice for both of us is at the end of the day, we're not just closing a door in a room that's in a house. We actually have a separate structure. So yeah. again, in the future, when there's more robust family dynamic at home, it's going to be nice to be like, okay, no, I'm at work. Won't you be able to see me type yeah. of thing? Yeah. Just got to figure out what I'm going to do for a bathroom situation. <laughs> Well, John told me if you can't do a 100-meter sprint in 10 seconds, you're cut off the Michelife team. So, you know, you got, I feel like that's the reason why you have the gym. Is that why John has been playing very much? <laughs> yeah. Okay, best book or quote that uh, you have for us? Oh, yeah. So from a fiction perspective, there's this book called uh, The Name of the Wind. I don't know if you guys have ever read anything like that. No. Really like that. It's supposed to be a three-part series, but the it's one of those classic things where the author's only written two of the three, and <laughs> he hasn't written the third one for like a decade almost or something like that. Oh, it's really? kind of he's sounds keeping... like me doing renovations. Yeah, yeah like kind of like a fantasy thing. Or... Fantasy thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's quite it's quite good. Uh, I think John's read that, and a bunch of other people they like it. So that I really enjoy. What about a nonfiction one? Let's see if I can think. Oh, The Compound Effect is a very simple to read, yeah. very easy fundamental book that I think is probably something that I try to deploy in my life more than anything else. And the whole purpose of the book, Compound Effect, is just means your daily actions, the little things that you do add up to a great result over time. So making that decision to actually go move some weights around on a daily basis, whether even if it's just for 15 minutes versus not. Every day is a vote for deciding what type of person you want to be. So how are you going to yeah. cast your vote that day? That's sort of thing. You know, that's Darren Hardy. And so he talks a lot about in his book about his mentor, Jim Rohn. So I read that book and then I became obsessed with Jim Rohn. I, yeah, I love that book. Is that the guy who has the audio tape series type of thing? Yeah, he, like, I think he died. An older guy, he famous in the 90s. Yeah, 90s. yeah. Okay. He is awesome. But Darren Hardy, the author of The Compound Effect, he says it in the book like, probably like six times that my mentor Jim Rohn. Right. And that's why I started reading that. So that's awesome. I love the book too. What about you guys? Do you guys have any? Mine's Jim Rohn. Yeah. You are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Wow. Well, you must like that. Taylor's a lucky guy. Get <laughs> me around all the time. I'm still looking Matt for four and... other people I hang out with. Matt, Emily, Leo. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Okay. Well, how can our listener best connect with you? Like if someone's yep. obviously looking to work in the commercial space, you guys are the go-to guys to work with. So yep. um, yeah. How can they support you? Yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate it. Ultimately, at the end of the day, email and phone is easy. That information will probably be available somewhere for you guys. But it's yes. interesting. I think when I was a lawyer, I built a practice based upon building relationships with realtors and bankers, largely. That was kind of the basis. But yep. now what's so interesting when in the new role is you're really having to cast a wide net because on the one hand, we're doing direct cold calling to clients that we want to work with, or we're building relationships with accountants because they do annual reviews with their clients. But what's interesting there is I can have 
relationships with 10 different accountants, but only one may actually take the step of having that extra conversation, realizing there's some debt on the balance sheet that may need to be addressed with a client or they have a renewal coming up, and then they'll actually take the step of recommending our services. And so it's one of those things where you kind of have to do quite a lot of groundwork with that. And it's also a time thing. Again, we've been in the market for six months in this role. So having to change our existing branding, let's say, and re-educate people as to what we're doing or just educate people as to what we're doing now is an important part of it. So try to do stuff on LinkedIn as well and have some online presence and that sort of thing. But to answer your question, yeah, it's email brian at lakepointcapital.ca. Feel free to reach out anytime. This is going to be an awesome origin story for your business because like you started right kind of like the hardest time in the market, right? And then you can be in a decade and be like, we started this. Yeah, well, people always ask me why interest rates went up. And I think the catalyst is Brian switching over <laughs> to commercial broker. And like the time frame really works. Let's make this yeah. harder. Let's I don't know if there's harder. a coincidence there, yeah. but. Yeah. Well, I like to, so I used to work a Blockbuster video and after I quit pretty soon after that, ended up shutting down shop. And oh. I, I like to say that there is a causation, not correlation <laughs> with that departure. So that's awesome. Okay, well, we'd love to have you back on. and. Yeah. Talk no, to you again, but yeah, it. appreciate your time. That's been awesome. Yeah, we'll yeah. put all your stuff in the show notes. Awesome, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Be sure to reach out and let us know how else we can add value to your Kelowna real estate journey. Please show some support by hitting the like, share, and subscribe button. This is sponsored by Matt Glenn Real Estate and Taylor Adventure Mortgages.